Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast recording of the Old Testament. Although this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort's been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. I'll be using for the text the Joseph Smith translation of the Old Testament, along with many commentaries from general authorities of the Church, BYU professors, Bible scholars, and others. This format will be very detailed, and so if you want a deep analysis of the Old Testament, you come to the right place. Thanks for your attendance. Hi, and welcome back to the Old Testament podcast. This will be for Exodus chapter 25. Today we get into a little bit more. We get into some about the building of the tabernacle and the stuff that goes in it. Verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart. Ye shall take my offering. Gifts we give should be voluntary. Moroni 7 says, For behold, God hath said a man being evil cannot do that which is good. For if he offereth a gift or prayeth unto God, except he shall do it with real intent, it profiteth him nothing. Dallin Oak said, Have ye ever found yourself doing something you thought was right, but doing it because you had to? Did you ever keep a commandment of God with an attitude of resentment or self-righteousness or even because you expected some immediate personal benefit? I suppose most of us have had this experience. Do you remember your feelings on such occasions? Do you think such feelings will be ignored by a Father in Heaven who gave us the willpower we call agency? Don't such feelings tell us something about the desires of our hearts? Under the law of God, we are accountable for our feelings and desires as well as our acts. Evil thoughts and desires will be punished. Acts that seem to be good bring blessings only when they are done with real and righteous intent. On the positive side, we will be blessed for the righteous desires of our hearts, even though some outside circumstance must made it, has made it impossible for us to carry those desires into action. For behold, it is not counted unto him for righteousness. For behold, if a man being evil giveth a gift, he doeth it grudgingly. Wherefore, it is counted unto him the same as if he had retained the gift. Wherefore, he is counted evil before God. And likewise, also, is it counted evil unto a man if he shall pray, and not with real intent of heart. Yea, and it profiteth him nothing. For God receiveth none such. Wherefore, a man being evil cannot do that which is good, neither he, neither will he give a good gift." Again, Elder Oak said, People serve one another for different reasons, and some reasons are better than others. Perhaps none of us serves in every capacity all the time for only a single reason. Since we are imperfect beings, most of us probably serve for a combination of reasons, and the combinations may be different from time to time as we grow spiritually. But we should all strive to serve for the reasons that are highest and best. Some may serve for hope of earthly reward. Others might serve in order to obtain worldly honors, prominence, or power. Another reason for service, probably more worthy than the first, but still in the category of service in search of earthly reward, is that motivated by a personal desire to obtain good companionship. These first two reasons for service are selfish and self-centered and unworthy of saints. Reasons aimed at earthly rewards are distinctly lesser in character and reward than the other reasons I will discuss. Some may serve out a fear of punishment. Service out of fear of punishment is a lesser motive at best. Other persons may serve out of a sense of duty or out of loyalty to friends or family or traditions. Those who serve out of a sense of duty or loyalty to various wholesome causes are the good and honorable men and women of the earth. Service of the character I have just described is worthy of praise and will surely qualify for blessings, especially if it is done willingly and joyfully. There are still higher reasons for service. One such reason, one such higher reason for service is the hope of an eternal reward. This hope, the expectation of enjoying 
enjoying the fruits of our labors is one of the most powerful sources of motivation. As a reason for service, it necessarily involves faith in God and in the fulfillment of his prophecies. The last motive I will discuss is, in my opinion, the highest reason of all. In its relationship to service, it is what the scriptures call a more excellent way. Charity is the pure love of Christ. The Book of Mormon teaches us that this virtue is the greatest of all. If our service is to be most efficacious, it must be accomplished for the love of God and the love of his children. This principle, that our service should be for the love of God and the love of fellow men, rather than for personal advantage or any other lesser motive, is admittedly a higher standard. Service with all our heart and mind is a high challenge for all of us. Such service must be free of selfish ambition. It must be motivated only by the pure love of Christ. Again, back to the Book of Mormon. For behold, a bitter fountain cannot bring forth a good fruit, neither can a good fountain bring forth bitter fruit or bitter water. Wherefore, a man being a servant of the devil cannot follow Christ, and if he follow Christ, he cannot be a servant of the devil. Verse 3, And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram's skins, red dyed red and badger's skins and shatim wood or acacia. The other tr- other three fabrics consisted of goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, and badger skins. The nature of the last kind of fabric is not clear. Scholars seem to agree only that it was not the skin of badgers. The Hebrew word implies the color of more than the kind of fabric. Some scholars believe it may have been the skins of porpoises or seals from the Red Sea, which would have given the tabernacle a waterproof outer covering. That was uh, from the Institute Manual. Verse 6, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, according to all that I shall that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, or furniture, equipment, or utensils, even so shall ye make it. God is so particular about the design of the structure and its furniture that he gives detailed explanations of everything. He has done the same in our day. When the Kirtland Temple was being contemplated, the first presidency was shown in vision the details of the design of the temple. The phrase, according to all that I show thee, seems to indicate that Moses was actually shown the tabernacle and its furnishings and not just given a verbal description. That was out of the Institute Manual. The Hebrew word, which is translated tabernacle, actually means tent or dwelling. Verse 10, And they shall make an ark of shatim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. It is interesting that the furniture seems to be mentioned in order of their importance or sacredness. The ark is first, then the table of shewbread, etc. Shatim is pronounced shitim in Hebrew and is used to designate a desert acacia tree known throughout Egypt and the Near East. Shita tree, shitim. Because its hardwood endured well and also took a high polish, it was ideal for the construction of the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant was a chest or box of shatim wood overlaid with gold. It was approximately 3 feet 9 inches long, 2 feet 3 inches wide, and 2 feet 3 inches high. That sounds pretty precise, not approximate, doesn't it? Anyway, Institute Manual said that. Verse 11, And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. In other words, this is going to be um, covered in gold, but solid gold would have been too heavy. 
Verse 12, And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof, and two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings of the sides by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, thou shalt not be, they shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. Staves or poles on both sides allowed the priests to carry it without actually touching the ark itself. Inside the tables of the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai were placed, hence it was called the ark of the testimony or ark of the covenant. Later a pot of manna and Aaron's but Aaron's rod, which miraculously bloomed, were also placed inside the ark. The ark was placed inside the inner room of the tabernacle, known as the Most Holy Place, or Holy of Holies. The ark was viewed with the greatest reverence by the Israelites, and prayers were recited before it was, was, before it was moved or placed in position. The lid, or covering for the ark, is described in Exodus uh, 25, verses 17 to 22. The King James Version translates the Hebrew word kaporeth, which means seat of atonement, as mercy seat. The covering was made of solid gold, and on it were formed two cherubim with wings, which came up and overshadowed the lid, or mercy seat. And that was out of the Institute Manual. Verse 17, And thou shalt make a mercy seat, of, in the Hebrew atonement cover, note that it was a golden slab of the same dimensions as the top of the ark. A winged cherub was placed on each end. A mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. Gold has been highly treasured by men from the earliest times, and thus has symbolic as well as monetary significance. Gold is often employed in Scripture as an emblem of what is divine, pure, precious, solid, useful, incorruptible, or lasting and glorious. This symbolism clearly explains the use of gold in the Ark of the Covenant. Silver and brass also were used in other parts of the tabernacle and its furnishings. These two metals have symbolic as well as functional significance. That was from the Encyclopedia Judaica. Oh, no, the following is from the Encyclopedia Judaica. The relativity of holiness was further pointed up by the materials. Fine or pure gold was used for the ark, the propitiary, the table of the presence, and its vessels for the lampstand, and its accessories for the altar of incense and for the high priest's garments. Ordinary gold was employed for the moldings, the rings, and the staves of the ark, of the table, and of the incense altar, for the hooks of the curtains, for the frames and bars, for the pillars and the veil and the screen, and for other parts of the high priest's vestments. Silver was reserved for the bases of the frames, for the pillars of the veil, and for the moldings of the court. Finally, there was bronze, of which metal the altar of burnt offering and its utensils, the, bre the bases of the court, and the laves were made. The same principle applied to the embroidered stuff and linen. The theme of, grad of gradation was continued in respect of the three divisions of the people. The Israelites could enter the court only. The priests could serve in the holy place. The high priest alone could enter the holy of holies but once a year on the Day of Atonement. Verse 18. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work, thou shalt make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. It appears that the lid and cherubims are made of solid gold. And and, and nineteen and make one cherub on the uh, on the one end, and another cher and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat, or as part of it, shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to, to another. 
or they shall face one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I give thee, in commandment unto the children of Israel. Thou shalt also make a table of shittim wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. The second article of furniture described by the Lord was the table of shewbread. Like the Ark of the Covenant, it too was, was to be made of shittim wood with a gold overlay. It had a crown and border, probably a rim of gold on the, on the top surface, the top or surface of the table, and had rings and staves to provide for easy transport. It was about three feet long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Various vessels of gold, called the spoons, dishes, covers, or bowls of the King James Version of the Bible, were made for the use for use with the table. That was out of the Institute Manual. Verse 24, And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, and make thereon, or make thereto a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt make unto it a border of a hand breadth round about, and thou shalt make a, a golden crown to the border thereof round about. And thou shalt make it make for it four rings of gold, and put the rings in the four corners that are of, on the four feet thereof. Over against the border shall the rings be for places of the staves to bear the table. And thou shalt make the staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold, and the table may be borne with them. And thou shalt make the dishes thereof, and spoons thereof, and covers thereof, or jugs and jars, and bowls thereof, to cover withal, wherewith to pour libations of pure gold shalt thou make them. And thou shalt set upon the table shewbread, the Hebrew bread of faces, or bread of the presence, Christ is the bread of life, before me alway. This table got its name from the twelve loaves of bread which were placed upon it. The Lord called it shewbread, which translates literally the, the Hebrew word meaning the bread of faces or the bread of the presence, signifying that this bread was placed before the face of the Lord or in his presence. The bread was made of fine flour, that is, the wheat had been very finely ground and not left with the kernels partially intact, unto twelve loaves into twelve loaves of considerable size. Two-tenths of a deal would be a, about a fifth of a bushel of flour. Thus the cakes would likely have weighed over ten pounds each. Wow, that's heavy. The loaves were put into two stacks, and upon each pile was placed pure frankincense that was later burned on the altar of incense, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. The bread was changed each Sabbath, and the bread that was removed was eaten by the priests. This was the bread given to David when, the, when he fled from King Saul. Most scholars in old Jewish traditions agree that wine was also placed on the table along with the bread, although it is not mentioned specifically in the biblical account. The spoons were actually vessels or cups rather than spoons as they are known today and were probably the containers for the liquid. Thus the items placed on the table of shewbread have distinct parallels in the emblems of the sacrament. And that was out of the Institute Manual. Verse thirty one Thou shalt make thou and thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold of beaten work, thou sh shalt the candlestick be made. His shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knops, and his flowers shall be of the same. They shall be or of one piece, that means. The source of light for the tabernacle was the sacred candlestick, called menorah in Hebrew, which means the place of lights. 
it held not candles, but the places of, let's see, it held not candles, but rather seven cup-shaped containers filled with pure olive oil into which a wick was inserted and lit. Made of solid gold, the menorah was supported by a base which rested upon three feet. Its shaft rose from the base, which was decorated by, by knops, spherical ornament, ornament, ornamentations, bowls, enlargements proportionate in size to the knops, and upon which were almond blossoms, and flowers, disc-like enlargements, representing the shape of an almond flower petal. Each of the branches of the menorah was crowned with a light which illuminated the holy place or first room of the tabernacle. The number seven had sacred, has sacred significance in the Old Testament, connoting wholeness or perfection. Thus, the light provided in the, in the house of the Lord symbolized the perfect light. The oil for the seven, seven lamps had to be pure olive oil that had been consecrated for that purpose. The Jewish festival of Hanukkah, or the festival of lights, celebrates the time when Judas Maccabees finally drove the Greeks from the temple in Jerusalem around 165 BC. According to Jewish tradition, the Maccabees found only enough consecrated oil for the sacred lamps to last one day. The consecration of new oil took eight days, yet miraculously the meager supply burned until a new supply could be properly prepared. That was by Josephus. Other scripture indicates that olive oil represents the Holy Spirit, probably because it provided fire, heat, and light when burned in the lamps. Thus, the sacred menorah was a type or symbol of the true source of spiritual light, namely the Holy Ghost, as he bears witness of the Father and the Son. That was out of the Institute Manual. Verse 32, And six branches shall come out of the sides of it, three branches of the candlestick out of the, out of the one side, and three branches of the candlestick out of the other side. Christ is the light of the world. Verse 33, three bowls made like unto almonds with a knop or crown-shaped circlets. It was an ornamental swell beneath the cups of the candlestick, probably in imitation of the fruit of the almond, and a flower in one branch and three bowls made like almonds in the other branch with a knop and a flower. So in the six branches, or thus shall be the six branches that come out of the candlestick. And in the candlestick shall be four bowls made like unto almonds with their knops and their flowers. And there shall be a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, according to the six branches that proceed out of the candlestick. Their knops and their branches shall be of the same. All of it shall be one beaten work of pure gold. And thou shalt make the seven lamps thereof, and they shall light or set up the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it. And the tongs thereof and the, and the snuff dishes thereof shall be of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold shall be shall he make it with all these vessels, and look thou look that thou make them after their pattern which ha, which was showed thee in the mount. Moses saw these items in vision. That's the end of chapter twenty five, and uh, we'll take it up next time. See you next time. Bye.